Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust and Dr. Emma Kennedy is Deputy Course Director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Hi, welcome to this episode of Conversations About Consultation. Today we are speaking with Professor Bill Urchel from North Carolina State University. Bill has had a 36-year career as a trainer of school psychologists in the States and has a really strong research record in consultation including co-editing a volume with Susan Sheridan in relation to research and school consultation. He's had a really significant dedication to both science and practice within school psychology in the States and more widely. It was a real pleasure to speak with Bill and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode. So Bill, it's an absolute pleasure to have you this evening. Well, thank you, Emma. I, I really appreciate that. And um, and this opportunity to speak to you about consultation. It's unfortunate we can't meet in person. I know that's not possible for a number of reasons, but next time maybe we can meet in London. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. That would be really great. Do you want to start and kick us off? Well, I wasn't sure of, of, of this entire context, but uh, I, I expect our conversation to be very wide ranging and, and covering some basics and more advanced topics and uh, things of, uh, of interest to the, the audience for the podcast. It would be really great, I think, to hear a little bit about um, the U.S. context, I guess, because you're uh, possibly our first guest from the U.S. Um, and we know that lots of terms that we use in the U.K., like educational psychologists, they exist in the US, but perhaps mean different things. And we know that in the US, you also have school psychology um, or school psychologists as, as a role, and also school counselors and the differences between those roles. So it would be really good to just hear a little bit about, yeah, the context and also maybe the training route into becoming a school psychologist in the US, because I think that possibly is quite different as well. Yeah, great starting point. I, I will say that Throughout most of the rest of the world, as I understand it, <clears throat> what we do in, in, in the U.S. called school psychology is called educational psychology. And this uh, is a very, very basic uh, point. And uh, because we use the term educational psychology a bit different, uh, differently in, in the States. And, and as uh, you, know, you and I talked about uh, just in a preliminary way um, oh, a month and a half ago or so, in the U.S., educational psychology is, is not a field of clinical practice. It, it is more of a, an area of research and, and not uh, the, uh, involving the individual treatment of, say, um, uh, student clients, uh, whereas school psychology is. So what do educational psychologists do? Well, they often do a lot of research on educational processes, uh, many of which are studied in schools, but often uh, in a group context. And so educational psychologists um, get a lot of training in statistical methods and, and, and larger problems that might be very uh, helpful, results that would uh, present implications for, say, policy, social policy, educational policy, et cetera, et cetera. 
And uh, then in contrast, uh, school psychologists in the United States represent a, a lot of different things. And, and um, there's a fair number of us. Um, by, uh, by some standards, there are between 30 and 35,000 school psychologists in, in the United States. And it is, uh, in contrast to uh, ed psych, more of a field of clinical practice uh, where you are uh, trained in the methods where you can assess and uh, treat individual children. Uh, you have the uh, supervised field experience, you have the credential, you have the uh, legitimate um, authority to intervene in that way. And, you know, I, I often, uh, there's many roles associated with school psychology in the U.S. I think that they're the top three might be assessment, which could be psychoeducational, academic, it could be uh, more uh, socio-emotional, personality type of functioning. It could also involve assessment of a setting, a classroom as a context for learning. But then there's also intervention, which of course is a, a big part if you look at the larger enterprise of consultation, in that you have to apply an intervention when you're doing consultation. But let's stick with intervention for the moment, which would be a direct service. And those could also follow, you know, in the area of uh, psychoeducational uh, types of things and, and more short-term things. Um, I think in the past uh, 20 years, one of the better developments I have seen in the U.S. relative to school psychology has been the emergence of evidence-based practice, with, uh, with, especially with respect to uh, interventions and what works clearinghouse and other similar clearinghouses that have vetted the efficacy and effectiveness of uh, interventions has been a major development. And that has a lot of implications for um, our topic of interest today, consultation, which is that third area of practice of school psychology. At least in, in my view, we could talk about other roles, but I think those are still the big three. Consultation is, is, is very big. Studies across time in the United States would say that, uh, and consistently across a 20-year period, that School psychologists spend about 20% of their time engaged in consultative uh, type of activities. And uh, consultation, consultation can take on many different forms, though, as you know, but um, a lot of it is consultation with teachers, either individually or in the context of more school-based teams which, and we will not have the time to um, open up this can of worms, but multi-tiered systems of support or previously known as um, response to intervention, which also has been around about 20 years, which has been a real game changer in the U.S. in terms of how services are provided to uh, students in schools. Let me, let me stop and take a breath because I still want to address uh, the school counselor. And I, I will say this, that looking at educational psychologists, there are many... Um, uh, routes to get to into educational psychology, but uh, what is true for both educational psychology and school psychology is that people are trained um, at the master's level and or doctoral level. That's true for educational psychologists. School psychology at this point in time has two levels of training, one of which is a specialist degree, which is an advanced master's degree, and that can be quantified a number of different ways, and as well as the doctorate. If you look at say elementary schools in particular, that's been my main experience, um, you know, professional work experience. Most elementary schools have a full-time counselor assigned uh, to them in the States. And that person probably has a master's degree. 
they they wouldn't have it was simply they wouldn't have a qualify for a credential to uh, practice school counseling with a bachelor's degree, but they would have a master's degree. And I suppose there's a few folks out there working in schools that would have a doctorate in school counseling, but I think those folks are probably in higher education, perhaps training counselors, that sort of thing. If you look at the work of school psychologists and school counselors, yes, there is some overlap, uh, certainly in terms of individual counseling with with children, maybe short-term interventions, that sort of thing. But um, one dividing line, at least in the States, is the uh, use of cognitive assessment instruments. Um, that's really within the domain of school psychologists and, and, and not in the domain of, of school counselors. But I, I will say, given all the school specialists that might be out there, we could even talk about school social workers. We could talk about school nurses and, and so on. Um, specialty area uh, groups like special education teachers, it's, it's all very much a team-based approach anyway. So we try to uh, make use of a, a given discipline's strengths and weaknesses and understand more, most importantly, how they can function effectively as a team. That's really, really interesting and really, really helpful, Bill, because um, I think our roles as trainee um, EPs and Emma's as an EP kind of falls across all of those kind of different areas. We have we yeah. deal with different parts. Um, yeah. So it's it's really, really interesting to hear about. But yeah, I was just wondering about your um, journey to be- becoming a um, school psychologist and if you could tell oh, us sure. about that. <laughs> Happy to talk about that. Um, well, you know, it's been said that your, your first uh, teachers are your parents and other significant adults in your early life. And I guess with that as a starting point, my father was a physician, clinical pathologist, and my mother was a nurse before uh, raising uh, the family. And my father's mother uh, was widowed the year I was born. And then she came to live with us. And she was a third grade teacher. So she, um, you know, obviously introduced the educational context to me. And I, I think just the, the home setting Uh, was influential uh, as a starting point. But then going uh, off to university, I was a double major in psychology and communication arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, 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 you know, probably thought this was a a very good state school, as we say here, uh, about 100 miles or doing the conversion about uh, 160 kilometers from where I grew up. But it was only after I graduated that I really fully appreciated the, uh, the status of uh, the University of Wisconsin. Anyway, my psychology training was excellent and certainly prepared me well for the next steps of uh, graduate training in school psychology. But um, thinking back on all this, I think the real bonus at uh, the University of Wisconsin was studying communication because that's so important to consultation. And some of the topics I was interested in and introduced to included interpersonal, uh, nonverbal and relational communication. And I think this prepared me for my later work in consultation and gave me a a perspective that many of my peers did not have. So those are just some of my foundational influences uh, guiding my career path. It's fascinating because here, um, it used to be the training route that you had to have been a teacher before you could apply to do the master's in educational psychology for you to be able to practice as what you might call it a school psychologist. And one of the questions I suppose that some of our British guests then have, have been, we've explored with them a little bit is, did you ever experience consultation 
like as a teacher before you became or were trained to be a psychologist who practiced consultation. So would we be right in understanding that you didn't, or yeah, have you ever had the experience of being a consultee before training to become a consultant? No, I really haven't. It's 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 interesting, and the pathways to careers um, are so different. Um, you know, given our our earlier discussion about school counselors, it is still the case where you need to present some experience of having been a teacher before you enter into the training to become a, a school counselor. And I don't think currently there are any, at least, uh, doctoral programs in school psychology that would place um, that requirement. On, a, on an applicant or someone who enrolls. I think, and it, it, it's, it's strange, but I think particularly at the doctoral level, maybe there's in school psychology a closer alignment with the discipline of psychology than the discipline of, uh, of education. I'm probably gonna get some angry letters for having said that, but I, I, and, and, and basically uh, our, our national organization would say school psychology is a hybrid field and it's equally composed of knowledge uh, important to psychology and knowledge important to education. So I understand that viewpoint, but I think I came from a tradition that was much more uh, heavily influenced by psychology. And in fact, the program I graduated from, the University of Texas at Austin, was the first program to be recognized and accredited by the American Psychological Association. The first school psychology program to be recognized, whereas uh, clinical programs, clinical psychology programs had been recognized in that way since um, the late 1940s. So yeah, so uh, school psychology is a bit of a late comer to that, but I guess it's a long-winded response to this, this issue of the value or the necessity to have been a teacher before entering into this training. And I just think it's a different, uh, different philosophy, perhaps, that, that prevails here. Mm. I think the the Emily and Jess are now in the newer training route where you don't mm-hmm. have to have had a teaching qualification or teaching experience, but you have to have, or you have to have, I should say, sorry, um, experience of working with children and young people. Yes. And that's yeah. a prerequisite. Plus your, and, and I think that point you're making, Bill, about aligning oneself with the discipline of psychology and seeing oneself as a psychologist rather than a kind of different kind of teacher if you know what I mean it, it yes. is really really important actually and at the same time recognizing there are issues potentially that people can feel or have put on them about credibility about you know being in a classroom and, and maybe sometimes anxieties about well, how would I best be able to help a teacher when I myself have not maybe had some of the same experiences that they've had um and also the benefits of not having had those experiences because you don't need to have had them to be able to draw on your psychological kind of knowledge skills, the evidence base and, and so on. So that's, you know, it's really interesting. I think we're just kind of, one of the things that we were talking about, and I think that you've you've mentioned already is about, you know, the, the significance of team-based approaches and trying to work together and playing mm-hmm. to people's sort of skills and strengths and gen, just a sort of general idea about the importance of relationships in consultation. And then linked again to your point about um, communication mm-hmm. and interpersonal skills and it having been such a big area of interest for you. I had never made that obviously didn't know about the the communication arts as being part of your initial Mm -hmm. training and is that you feel that that's part of the reason why you went down and sort of 
research that area of consultation practice? I, I think so. And um, I think so. My early research drew directly from literature I had studied as an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin. So I, I think there was a framework that had been established then that was very helpful later on. And it's, um, yeah, my early work in relational communication, which was really my first, I don't know, branch or first theme of, of um, my research program, really stemmed back to ideas that I was introduced to as, in, as a second and third year student in, in, at the university. So there, there was a lot there. And, and again, I've run into one or two people, maybe across time, my, my, um, my peers, um, fellow researchers in consultation who acknowledged and having been exposed to this, but it, it's not as central to their outlook as, as it is to mine. I guess we um, also are very interested in terms of where you've kind of, yeah, found that interesting consultation and where that started. Obviously, we have to talk about uh, Kaplan, <laughs> Gerald Kaplan, and, um, you know, we are really interested in kind of your experience of, of working with him because, Obviously, we it's where kind of school consultation came from. Um, yeah, so I guess if you could yeah, tell us a bit about that, that would be really oh, good. Oh, I'd, I'd be happy to. And, and that's um, that's a lot of content to cover. I'd, I think I'll start with just um, explaining with uh, how I got involved with consultation, because uh, just like I had no, um, say, uh, teaching experience uh, going into graduate school, I hadn't really understood what consultation was before entering into a graduate program, which, which really featured it and, and spotlighted it as a major mode of, of professional practice. So really my first uh, term or first semester at the University of Texas at Austin that I learned what consultation was, I kind of had this fuzzy notion about children's uh, about how children's educational and mental health challenges could be addressed on a system-wide basis. And so that kind of led me to schools as, you know, I guess this is where it can happen, right? Because it's a captive audience and you can provide services to a good number of uh, school-aged children if they're provided in schools. But at the same time, uh, I didn't know that there was an emerging body of literature that we would later call school consultation. And uh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. But uh, here's where the University of Texas at Austin comes in. And, and maybe this is a little bit for the history books, but I, I find it an entertaining story. 40-some years ago, if you were interested in entering into a, a training program, you would have to phone or write for a printed brochure to understand what this program of training offered. I know that sounds kind of foreign to at least two of you, but uh, anyway, um, that's what we did. And uh, anyway, I, I received and read the, uh, the University of Texas brochure, and I was sold. I mean, it was... Uh, it uh, was a program that departed from the traditional uh, school psychology training at the time. Uh, it emphasized consultation, data-oriented problem-solving, system intervention. I mean, it, it, uh, it all sounded good to me, even though this was very abstract at the time. And I think this brochure did something else. It was about a nine or 10-page brochure. And it's probably not permitted today for legal reasons, but they, there was a part of the brochure that listed the complete names of graduates and where they worked and what they did. And I was impressed with seeing the names on there. Uh, many were, uh, were at that time were about to become very prominent consultation researchers and trainers of uh, consultants. And I'll just mention some of the names because I think you've probably read some of their work before. Uh, Joel Myers, Roy Martin, Michael Curtis, 
Terry Gutkin, Jane Close Connolly, and Jan Hughes. And now, of course, they're all my colleagues, and, and some are good friends. So there, a lot became of that. But getting down to what I was introduced to, um, in terms of consultation training, I took two didactic courses. Uh, they ran about 45 hours each. And there was at least one field experience of about um, 100 hours. But most importantly, there was a year-long internship. And that's very common for school psychology training at the PhD level in the States. Uh, it was a 1,500-hour internship. And most importantly for me, it had a school-based consultation focus. And, and really, uh, several models of consultation were promoted, including uh, mental health, behavioral, and organizational consultation. And my uh, PhD uh, dissertation advisor was Marty Tambari, who is a pioneer in the area of behavioral consultation and really uh, someone who put together that consultation analysis record that we, uh, we uh, referred to earlier. So my training was uh, very good at the University of Texas. And, but then leaving Texas, finishing that training, uh, the first time I moved to Los Angeles, it was the early 1980s. I was a research associate for Thomas Backer at the Human Interaction Research Institute. And Tom was then the president of uh, the APA's uh, Division of Consulting Psychology. And as I recall, they actually had a grant to study consultation, and I was uh, put on that project. So that was nice. And then uh, you mentioned uh, Gerald Kaplan. It was in 1990 I started working with him. And I think we need to talk about Kaplan just briefly in terms of his uh, history at Tavistock, right? He was there in the 1940s, and he worked with people that... Um, you know, people familiar with Tavistock might recognize. Kaplan was also uh, was someone who would always mention John Bowlby, but there was also uh, J.R. Rees, uh, Wilfred uh, Bion, John Rickman, and Eric Trist. These are people whose, um, what, paintings or photos probably are in some hallway at, at Tavistock, right? But uh, uh, of course, Kaplan is best known for his development of mental health consultation. And uh, I guess a final uh, influence, I guess, uh, notice my education didn't stop when I left uh, graduate training. I guess that's, that's part of the message being sent here. But in 1993, I started working with uh, UCLA uh, social psychologist, uh, Bert Raven. And uh, we applied his comprehensive model of social power bases to study influence within consultation. And that was, um, Bert, of course, was a friend and, and colleague, but I learned a lot from him about uh, consulting. So anyway, so you can see that I've had some uh, good teachers and colleagues along the way. I can't, when you said Tombari, I'm just thinking Tombari and Bergen and how many times I've written that down uh, as a reference. <laughs> and you, you, yeah, the bringing things to life and kind of, um, that very illustrious list of people you were mentioning on, on the, the Texas sort of brochure is also making me think about how we could maybe try and be slightly more persuasive in what we publish as our sort of, please come and train and train here. Um, yeah, there you go. Often, funnily enough, does not, I mean, I, I bet Emily and, and Jessica address this, but I, I don't think that there's much of a wider understanding that Kaplan had actually come to the Tavistock and had had a particular interest actually in child psychiatry. It's not something um, that's very well published or, or promoted in any way. And I think the kind mm -hmm. of first time he even kind of comes into the story, I suppose, is, is that bit about having gone to Israel after the war mm -hmm. 
um, and about the challenges that that he was faced with and that small team of people that he was working with and the scale of the challenge that they were facing. Um, and that idea of, you know, a thousand referrals in a year for some very, one would imagine, incredibly distressed and traumatized adolescents and kind of institutions really not knowing what to do and, and his recognition that the kind of diagnose and treat model that perhaps might have been quite common within psychiatry at the time wasn't really maybe going to be fit for purpose for for what the, the challenge that he was faced with um which has some resonance i think for for us today um in the sense that if as psychologists were operating on a kind of a, an assess and report kind of basis and, and psychometric testing being kind of a core part of that, um, is that really going to be sufficient to meet the challenges of the needs of children and young people in, in schools and in the community nowadays? And do we, I mean, we've got a much, much smaller number of EPs than, than you would have in, in the States. Um, and consultation and what it can offer when it's done well. Um, I was just, yeah, wondering, would you, I suppose like the successes of consultation or why why be interested in it, why want to develop further in us, um, in your kind of research and experience, Bill, yeah, what, what do you feel can be gained from psychologists working in that way? Well, I've been a proponent of consultation for a long time, and you know, there's some standard things that are cited as advantages. One, since Kaplan is is a topic where we've introduced and are going to talk more about, I will say that it's the perfect tool to play out his vision of primary prevention, which is that if you can work in a way to provide support and skill development and uh, supportive understanding of consultees in their workplace, you can make those strides toward preventing problems in a client population under the purview of those consultees. And I think that it's, again, sounding a bit abstract, but at the same time, I think that's um, something that people don't always associate with consultation. They see it as a role that people play, but they don't link it to prevention. And, you know, and, and part of that, if you want to be less grandiose, I guess, about why we involve ourselves in consultation, you could talk about just the spread of effect. So a common example I use is that, well, um, a school or educational psychologist could individually treat five, five students. So five students may or may not improve because of the efforts of one person. But if that school psychologist, educational psychologist, works with five teachers, each of whom have 25 pupils in their classroom, the potential spread of effect is now up to what? If I have my math right, 125. So it's, I mean, I do think that that's a big, a big part of it. And, you know, I, I do think that we can spin our wheels a lot with and get frustrated and get stressed out by uh, direct care kinds of responsibilities. I think consultation, and certainly this is another Kaplan idea, consultation serves as a support network or has, uh, has a supportive function in an organizational context. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but we talk a lot about teacher burnout and how teachers 
Uh, I forget the latest statistic, but uh, half of the teachers who enter the field are gone three to five years later. Okay. And who knows, yeah, who, who knows what effect the pandemic will have on early retirements and on things like this, but talk about teacher stress for a minute and then talk about the supportive role that consultation might be able to play uh, given that context. So those are just three reasons I think, you know, we might want to keep in mind as for why we we bother to, um, to work on things uh, in this manner. And of course, my examples, the three uh, points I made are, were very Kaplanian. I, I think that that meant that they had a definite consultee centeredness to them. A lot of consultation though is client-centered and we do know from outcome studies, from meta-analyses, et cetera, that consultation does have very positive effects on client populations um, based upon a lot of this work is uh, single case design types of things coming from the behavioral consultation area. But at the same time, there, there is a literature going back uh, decades that uh, can point to uh, the justification of why we would consult and um, you know, act in this, in, in this manner. And so obviously I'm a proponent of it, but it, it's not just me. I, I think there are data to back this up and there's some rich uh, conceptual thinking that goes into this. Yeah, I think that... Um... It's definitely a conversation that is quite, I guess, topical here in the UK and perhaps relatively recent, actually, in terms of being taken up by services um, as a model of service delivery. And it just got me thinking that we're talking quite a lot about, um, you know, Kaplan or, or different models of consultation. But I think something that comes to my mind quite a lot here is that actually it's kind of a struggle to find a definition or yeah, a way of thinking about what consultation actually is. So we, we talk about the models and, and things like that, which are obviously all quite different. Um, but I was wondering a bit whether you have a way of defining consultation or what, how you would present that, I guess, in terms of if a service, for example, in the UK says, oh, yeah, we're, we offer a consultation model of service delivery, which here that would mean that that's maybe the approach that EPs or educational psychologists take to their work, not always, but sometimes. Um, and it's perhaps not a voluntary um, thing for schools. So that the educational psychologist kind of chooses that that's the approach that they're going to take. And then they kind of bring that to the school and, and maybe does that. And, and every educational psychologist seems to think slightly differently about what consultation is perhaps. Um, yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting to us your opinion on what you think consultation is briefly and also what that's like in the US. Is that similar or, or different? Oh, yeah. What a great question. I, I think you're going to find a lot of different definitions of consultation. I, in, in concert with uh, my, my colleague, Brian Martens, um, in our, our textbook, we did offer a definition of consultation starting back in 1997 that we didn't change through three editions of the book. Maybe I could just read that to you as a starting point to kind of let people know what this is. And again, we have to consider this as um, consultation in the schools. This is not a general definition of consultation or one that might apply in other other settings with, with other dynamics, with other uh, considerations. But let me just uh, uh, read through this and, and, and see, what, uh, see what you think. Uh, school consultation is a process for providing psychological and educational services in which a specialist, known as a consultant, works cooperatively with a staff member, consultee, to improve the learning and adjustment of students, clients, 
or a group of students. During face-to-face -face interactions, the consultant helps the consultee through systematic problem solving, social influence, and professional support. In turn, the consultee helps the clients through selecting and implementing effective school-based interventions. In all cases, school consultation serves a remedial function and has the potential to serve a preventive function. So there, there's a lot uh, to unpack there, but it does uh, prescribe a role or suggest a role that is different from the way a lot of educational psychologists, school psychologists might, might act or provide services. But um, I, I do think it, you know, the model revolves around the three interrelated tasks and problem solving is, is key to that. I remember uh, Joe Zins and I wrote 20 years ago that problem solving is the essence of consultation. So you want to keep that in the forefront. Another one, though, is social influence. Now, you said that not all consultation is voluntary. Now, that's um, I, I'm interested to hear more about that in the UK because it is no longer voluntary, as Kaplan envisioned decades ago. In the US, there are certain constraints, there are certain regulations in place that suggest that if you're going to engage in multi-tiered systems of support and you're the teacher, you have to implement an evidence-based intervention with integrity, okay? You can't reject it because you find it not to your liking. So anyway, social influence is sometimes necessary to, to use to have someone try something different to buy into an idea, to uh, follow through. So that's the second task. And then the third one is uh, professional support and development. And professional mm -hmm. support and development is much like it sounds. That's very Kaplanian, by the way, uh, given what mm -hmm. I said earlier, that just the idea that this is new to a lot of people. And there's a lot of demands we place on, say, uh, school staff, teachers mm -hmm. in particular. So you have to help them out and, uh, and, and work through all this. And uh, so it is, it is uh, quite difficult. But um, I did write an article about 10 years ago that kind of looked at how consultation was changing in the United States because it wasn't this, this Kaplanian notion any longer of the consultee has the freedom to accept or reject uh, what, what is being brought across as part of the consultative plan. Um, again, changes in federal law in the U.S. sort of changed, uh, again, some of the dynamics um, uh, in which uh, consultation would be conducted. So mm. let me leave it at that for the moment. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because <clears throat> in the sense that we might say it's not voluntary here because the, the service says that's our model of working we work in this way so it's not necessarily like a what would it like a menu of like you can have psychological assessment you can have psychological training it's like that's actually everything that we do is delivered in this mechanism however the bit about the freedom of the teacher to choose to go with or to go with parts of it or not actually I don't think we've really re worked out exactly what that might be like there isn't a compulsion an illegal compulsion mm -hmm. on a consultee to take up um a, a, the con so I, this is quite mixed actually and quite complicated mm -hmm. i guess what is very striking is um within all of this is this issue about influence and about relationship and you know you kind of defining in the book um 
is that that point, Bill, about the consultative relationship and the potential, this idea about, you know, the so-called myth of collaboration and that they're not being actually this desire, I think, you know, people to say it, it's voluntary, it's non-hierarchical, it's co-equal, we're exactly, we're ex- both experts and both bringing expertise, that actually the empirical support for that kind of relationship isn't necessarily there. And uh, you and, and, and Martens may be saying it might be better framed or seen as a more of a cooperative relationship. I guess one thing that Emily and Jess and I were wondering about when you guys were were talking in that way. What was the reaction? I get. I mean, I think if we if, if we were to say anything other than everyone's equal, and you know, <laughs> people are very passionate about values around what they perceive to be collaborative and non-expert, non-hierarchical. Mm-hmm. We were just wondering about how people received that message and. Well, I mean, yeah, this brings me back a few years. And if you want a quick snapshot of that, there was an exchange I had with uh, Terry Gutkin in 1999 that he called uh, the collaboration debate. And that those were two or three articles that appeared in the Journal of School Psychology. And yes, at a time when I was promoting uh, the importance of social influence, I mean, first, more indirectly through my relational communication studies, and then more directly through uh, the application of French and Raven uh, social power-based model, and then Raven's uh, revised power interaction uh, model of interpersonal influence, that didn't sit well with a lot of people, because I think it it chipped away at some of these cherished traditions that we had somehow acquired as part of the field. And so basically there were some people who just really didn't like what the message we were sending. And to be honest, I feel somewhat vindicated now because when RTI, uh, Response to Intervention and Multi-Tiered Systems Support came in, it became clear that there had to be ways to somehow achieve treatment integrity, having high levels of fidelity and implementing interventions. So not only was the interventionist in a position of, or the consultant in a position of of having a teacher adopt an intervention, uh, he or she had to make sure that the teacher implemented with integrity. So how do you do that with a co-equal basis? Well, it certainly, if you look into my research, it, it calls for um, the possible use and, and drawing on uh, soft power bases to influence people to do exactly that. Endorse an intervention, embrace it, implement it, and follow through in a way that it, there's documented evidence that it was carried out as intended. And I, so I, I think that these were unpopular ideas um, because collaboration, you know, in fact, you know, it's, there's been a weird progression of the seas, if you want to consider that. First, we had consultation. And then certainly by the 1990s, we had collaboration. And now today we have coaching. So what are the similarities? What are the differences? Is it old wine and new bottles? I think that's... Um, worth discussing, but some of the things that I believe Brian Martens and I were talking about as consultation was a modern take on consultation that a lot of people find more in the league of what is called coaching now uh, among um, the, the school psychology community that engages in coaching. We, we, I teach the consultation model module and we have a, a year long for it. So Emily and, and Jessica finished that now. But we start really with actually Edgar Schein and we start with the idea of when you're asking for help or you're in the position of having to be 
help seeking that idea he has of the you're in the one down position and the consultant almost is automatically kind of in a the help giver position in a, a consultation relationship and I suppose we've started with the idea that there can't be complete equality and exact sameness because the relationship and the the roles are are very different in a helping relationship um of a consultation nature and we kind of think about other kinds of helping relationships that often get confused you know like it's not therapy it's not supervision it's not coaching it may have elements or draw on aspects because we would think about the common features around relationships and engaging in relationships and I guess that's another thing that we were we were really interested in um with this idea of of cooperation and relational you know communication and how consultants influence in an in a way that's in service of clients i suppose um outcomes and things that you feel are really important for today's generation of 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 consultants or consultants in training what are some of the things that you feel or even readings that you would suggest that people could could look at or or key things that you'd really want today's practitioners to be paying close attention to well, that's certainly a tough one. Let me start in a general sense and become more specific here. I, I do think that the consultative relationship is tricky. There's no other working relationship like it. And mm-hmm. I think once you understand the nuances and how it is similar to, but different from some of those other um, modes of operation that you've described, uh, that'll go a long way. Mm-hmm. Okay? I, and, and, I, and as you say, it, uh, it, it borrows from many other you know, modes of action, but it's, it's, it's unique. And I think most importantly, I, I train my students to really take the contracting phase very importantly and realize that you're setting the stage for a working relationship that you're, the person across the table from you or on the other end of the camera has probably never entered into before. I still find a lot of people don't understand what this is. And um, so there's there's a lot of initial work that needs to be done in, in a contracting phase, just to kind of let people know how, you know, what your expectations are and then negotiate as needed, and, but settle on some sense of agreement, you know, in terms of the, with what the actions and responsibilities of each party will be. So that's obviously, a you know, a, an important starting point, but it's, um, you know, there's one major area that I can kind of address your question with by drawing from that French and Raven and, and Raven's subsequent work relative to the social power bases, because I found it to be important uh, in, in my case to understand the role of referent power and expert power. I think later on, I was going to talk about the article that introduced me to those ideas applied to consultation. And maybe I could talk about that now. I can't remember when I read it. I had to have been in graduate school, but um, Roy Martin, another one of those UT grads, wrote an article in the Journal of School Psychology in 1978. And it had to do with uh, maximizing the effectiveness of the consultant through the use and understanding of uh, expert and referent power. I think that, let's see, where to start with this? Well, first of all, you know, when you look at, you know, French and Raven's Bases of Power, it came out in 1959. About a year ago, Bert Raven died and I wrote his obituary for the American Psychologist. 
And if you put, plug in French and Rave in 1959 and, and into any search engine, immediately you'll get uh, three and a half million hits. Like it's that popular a framework. And again, probably better well-known, more important, if you will, in industrial organizational psychology, in the business world, the management world, in leadership studies, et cetera. But uh, Roy Martin, to my knowledge, was the first person to really apply it to school consultation and, and try to have people understand what it is. So anyway, at that time, 1978, there were just five or six power bases out there. Raven revised the model with 14, but that's we don't have time to talk about all those today. Uh, the framework really has to do with how one party sees the other party or makes attributions of the other party. And um, something I learned is that one of Bert Raven's early professors was Leon Festinger, who was all part of that group that sort of introduced a lot of in interesting ideas about cognitive dissonance and, you know, person perception or attribution theory. You know, a lot of these great ideas uh, in social psych came out during the uh, very fruitful period that Bert Raven was uh, exposed to. But if you look at um, the framework, then expert power uh, as applied to consultation is based on a consultee's perception that a consultant is knowledgeable or has expertise in a specific area. So in other words, as consultants, we all want to accrue expert power. People want to see us as having something to contribute, right? We're knowledgeable. We can add more to an understanding or lead, lead to a solution to a problem than we could if we were just working on our own. So obviously, as, as consultants, we need to uh, develop that perception by others of us. Um, but the other one that he pointed out, Martin pointed out in this article, is referent power. And that's based on a consultee's sense of similarity with a consultant or the desire to identify with the consultant. So this is very different. This is a very relational kind of thing. So for example, uh, earlier in, in our conversation, we talked about do school psychologists have prior teaching experience? Well, if you do... I bet in many consultation situations with teachers, and that comes out in the course of conversation, you will be attributed a higher level of referent power than someone who doesn't, because there's, a, there's sort of a, a shared experience there. But let's say you don't have that background. But let's say, on the other hand, the teacher wants to become an educational psychologist just like you. Well, then they identify with you and the work you do and maybe take a special interest in what you're doing. So you have scored some points in the referent power department. So, and see, let's be clear though, social power in this context isn't used the same way we might use social power in other contexts. Uh, uh, for example, in the, in the French and Raven model, social power really refers to the potential for changing the beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors of another party. But social influence is really what we're interested in here. That's really showing you've demonstrated a change in the beliefs, attitudes, or behaviors of another party. So the more social power you have, the greater the odds you're going to be able to change those aspects of another person. Okay, well, let's get back to expert and referent power. The, the problem is that they're, I like to say they're classically antagonistic. What does that mean? That's a good jargon uh, phrase for today. Well, it means that if you are perceived as having more of one, you're also going to be, see, be perceived as having less of the other. Think about it. Okay, if I could paraphrase a, a common saying, an expert is someone who is from uh, 80 kilometers away. In the States, we say an expert is someone who's from 50 miles away. So anyway, same idea, right? Because the expert isn't like you. The expert is different from you. And that's why they're so valuable to problem solving. 
But by the same token, someone who has a high level of referent power in your estimation can't be an expert because they're too much like you, okay? And when you have that dynamic going on, it's clear that they're both important, but for different reasons. And then also, I believe in that article, Martin cited the social psych research at that time that said, if you're an expert, you can only be perceived as an expert if you're, if you're knowledgeable in, say, a handful of areas, maybe two or three areas of expertise. Don't try to be a jack of all trades because you won't be seen as an expert in any of them if you spread yourself that thin. But referent power is just the opposite. You can be friends with a lot of people. You can look at uh, social media. We all know people who have thousands of friends on whatever your favorite social media site is or followers or whatever. So anyway, getting back to the question that prompted this, this long-winded response, the key then is to, you should avoid being perceived as too knowledgeable and thus be attributed little or no referent power, as well as being uh, too similar and thus being attributed little or no expert power. So striking a balance between those two, I have found is really important. And in any given consulting session I'm in, I'm constantly looking at where I am on that continuum and where do I need to be if my hunches are right. Now, I was thinking when you were talking, Bill, about what you're describing as almost like a dance and a really attentive present in the moment. Like I'm thinking about the cognitive and emotional demand on the consultant to kind of be noticing how how different am I being? How similar am I being? How How is this landing? What way am I being responded to? And kind of bringing to life that idea that consultation is not something that you can kind of just sort of, not that anybody would ever slack off in something, but it, it is a very um, emotionally and cognitively demanding task for the consultant to be engaging in because you really want to be attending how how am i going and how is is that how you how you see it or or some somewhat differently well, that's certainly a a part of it and and i think something that got me into that mode was uh actually my exposure to relational communication where the methodology is really studying message by message how a, a conversation unfolds or an interview unfolds in consultation uh mm -hmm. you can kind of see the rise and fall of certain dynamics by looking mm -hmm. at uh, what messages are exchanged and, and that sort of things. So I guess it, and even backing off from that, I'd like to think all psychologists are probably better at judging the process of events than the average person on the street. Mm. Okay. In other words, most people that I know of can engage in intelligent conversation because they're following the content, but how mm. many people are also following the process of that? Okay, by that I mean relational communication taught me to monitor that expert referent power, you know, because I'm kind of looking at how things unfold. But another thing that relational communication can tell us about process is looking at certain markers that might occur. Uh, for example, one, there are two that I attend to, topic changes, okay, and also interruptions. I think those two have a pretty high profile in the relational communication literature. And topic changes is kind of a tricky one because if you're the consultant and have operating from behavioral consultation point of view, you have goals and objectives to get to and obtain responses for, and that requires topic changing. So it can be purposeful, but changing topics too frequently without adequately addressing any one goal or objective probably is counterproductive. So um, there, that's one thing to watch for. But topic change, to be honest, is, is, a, 
is a measure of process, okay? You can, you have to know vaguely what's happening content-wise, but you know when there's, you can tell when there's a, an abrupt break or transition in a conversation because someone has introduced the topic change. So those might play out differently for a consultant versus a consultee, but in any event, they're worth tracking. Interruptions uh, is a trickier topic because interruptions occur for a number of different reasons. In fact, I was just reading uh, recently, there's a new term called uh, cooperative overlapping. I don't know if you've heard that, but that's coming into play. I think Deborah Tannen, a psycholinguist, has talked about that. And that's where someone is finishing someone else's sentences. And um, again, that might, you know, might be friendly. It might be a sense of the familiar. It, 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 might, it might encourage further conversation, but to others, it, it might be counterproductive if no one's getting their thoughts out and what have you. But again, I, I mentioned these just to point out the importance of process and uh, that goes beyond content, but that's also something I keep a, um, I, I monitor in conversations, not just consultation, but just at, at a party or whatever, you can kind of see what, what happens. But you, you did say it is kind of like a dance. Well, I, I think if you go back into the history of the study of face-to-face -face communication, you will find more than one reference um, to that enterprise as, as a dance with different steps and the need to improvise and all kinds of different things that, that uh, make it an apt metaphor. It also dancing, I guess, has lead, you know, someone's leading and someone's following. Exactly. And link back into, because I suppose some of what, when you were describing, even words, Bill, like power, like influence, they can be um, the connotations, I guess, they have. People can be really uncomfortable with the idea of taking up that kind of level of authority and feeling really quite uncomfortable about doing it. Um I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking yeah. for, for Jess and M, but I'm interested in when you're hearing Bill say those kinds of things, I'm, do, do, you, do you get that same sense I have of, I, I can hear how that might, um, it can make either trainees or indeed practitioners quite uncomfortable, a, a discomfort with the idea that one is influencing somebody else. As you were responding, if I could just break in here, I'm interested in a, a range of comments on this, but I was remembering, thinking back on my career, some of the regrets I have. And I titled two articles using the wrong words. My, my first uh, study of relational communication, I used the word that was prevalent in that literature, and that phrase was relational control. So uh, if you look at my 1987 article, it was something like an examination of relational control in school-based consultation. Well, I really wish to this day I would have said an examination of relational communication in school-based consultation, because I think that would have been more palatable. Control was the wrong word to use when I was adapting concepts for a, a different audience. A second regret I have is using social power when I should have used social influence. I think that social influence is coming around. I mean, I, in the sense that I think more and more people are accepting that social influence is a part of the consultation process. Not all do, some never will. But at the same time, I think there's a greater acceptance of that term. But unfortunately, my use of the word social power, uh, when I first started working with Bert Raven, and I'm thinking back specifically to a 1997 article I wrote, he and I for a special issue of the Journal of School Psychology, I used social power twice in that title, and I should have used social influence at least once. 
And I, as I say, I regret that because I think words matter. And the the help-giving community just didn't want to hear about social power or relational control. Yeah, I think that um, as a trainee as, as well, you know, when you feel already perhaps it's quite new, everything that we're doing, especially in consultation, like you kind of said, Bill, you didn't really think about that before we were training. And it was the same for me. I didn't even know what the word really meant in relation to, you know, psychology generally. I think I'd heard it in a doctor-patient style way. And when you kind of think about those words like power, um, like social power or relational control, I think alongside or coupled with a feeling perhaps of incompetence at times or a developing sense of competence that's a bit fragile <laughs> um, and and recognizing actually I for me personally I wasn't a teacher before I started this course and when I'm in consultation with teachers and they might have you know years of experience of teaching where is my role um, in terms of, yeah, where is that power? And sometimes it's not always that I'm in that one-up, as we kind of learned from Shine, um, from Emma's teaching. We're not always in that one-up position in terms of knowledge. Um, often I feel that, yeah, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable with the term like relational control or, or social power in terms of my own feelings of efficacy, I guess. Um, and I think that's possibly shared amongst trainees but also possibly EPs and like you said the helping community I don't know Emily if that's something you feel like as well yeah no definitely I think they're the kind of words that we try and um, avoid and we we try and make it like we are being as cooperative (laughs) um, as possible I think one thing that stuck um, out for me um, Bill when you were talking about the referent power and thinking about kind of differences between the consultant and the consultee um, and thinking a bit about diversity and culture and even gender and sex and how that all of these things come come into play um, between the consultant and the consultee and I think you might have done a paper um, on gender and thinking about the differences between the consultant and the consultee and as a female and um, con- trainee consultant and um, I'm often kind of struck by the kind of differences between um, me and a female consultee and me and a male consultee. And I think, um, especially this past year, I've had a lot more exposure to male um, consultees and thinking about kind of, you know, social influence and power um, and kind of the stereotypes around that sort of gender and male and female kind of dynamic. Um, And I was just wondering if you kind of had any sort of comments on that or from that kind of research that you did, because I know there wasn't any male consultees, I don't think, in there. Uh, That's right. I mean, you're referring to um, some of the later uh, research we did, uh, gender-based research. Um, I mean, if you look at the possible dyads, you know, you could, we only had, we mainly had uh, female consultants, female teachers. I'm trying to think of the breakdown, but I, we were unable to analyze data having to deal with um, male teachers. It was too small, but I, yeah, I mean, just looking at the numbers and the the demographics in U.S. society, you could actually have a pretty uh, reasonable line of research if you just looked at the interactions between female consultants and and female teachers, because they're going to be preponderance of of dyads regarding gender. And unfortunately, we we don't have a lot 
uh, to say about the cross gender kinds of uh, considerations, although we do have male consultants and female teachers, but even the male, the number of male consultants is relatively low too. Um, Hey, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, some of the things we found probably have, have seen these, but just for the record, I can say um, female consultants perceive soft power bases to be more effective than harsh bases uh, than do male consultants. So, you know, the soft bases, um, again, we don't have time to really define any of, uh, you know, most of these, but if you look at some of the, the, the common ones, uh, expert power, referent power, informational power, let's just stick with those three. Those commonly emerge as, as important ones. So there's that perception that their female consultants perceive them to be more effective than male consultants. But Unfortunately, female consultants are no more likely to use those strategies based on the soft power bases than male consultants. And then interestingly, this clouds the issue even more. Male consultants are more likely to use strategies based on positive expert power than the other soft bases combined. So maybe that fits a stereotype, should I say? I don't know, that they're going to rely on their expertise or something rather than something else. I don't know. But then female consultants are less likely to use influence strategies based on positive referent than the other uh, soft bases combined. So, you know, we just don't have a lot of information on that other than to suggest that the relationship dynamics are going to be different based upon, are likely to be different based upon the composition of the consulting dyad. And I think that's, um, there's a lot more work that could be could be done on that. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I was going to say that that research exists in the broader communication literature. And some of that was cited by uh, my student, Kim Getty, in, in her work. And obviously, that was a, a few years back. But so there's probably updates on that. But that's communication more generally. That isn't uh, seeing it applied to that problem-solving context of, of consultation. So a very rich potential vein for future directions in terms of research. And I guess also thinking about intersections with other aspects of identity in terms of maybe race, ethnicity, faith, class would would probably also play out um, a little bit there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think- I mean, it's it's so rich, and of course, that is um, an understanding of um, diversity um, broadly defined is, I think, a, um, increasingly a driving force uh, behind consultation, research, and practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're we're going to see much more uh, research to come. I I, I did note that uh, uh, a journal that I serve on the editorial advisory board for, kind of helping out uh, the editor with new initiative initiatives and such, is the Journal of Educational and Psychological Consultation. Yeah. And I did note um, I was just reviewing articles that have been published in 2020, and uh, they had a special issue. I just want to promote uh, JEPC because it is. Um, certainly um, very relevant to our discussion here today and and a journal that uh, listeners of the podcast will want to really check out. My point is that they they did did a special issue on... Is it the recent one on social justice bill? That one that that was like late 2020, there was a special editorial and then a series of articles that was... Yes, that was the special issue. Good good memory. Yeah. uh, That was the uh, third uh, issue of of 2020, the social justice uh, one, and, you know, dealing with a a variety of different uh, issues, um, including white privilege. I think there's some on restorative justice, culturally responsive consultation. That wasn't in that particular issue, but a a number of different considerations here 
that you know that just speak to the you know the the necessity of considering these these other variables. And of course, Kaplan told us that same story. You know, as he had a very very broad view of consultation, and you need to think systemically. What are the relevant societal variables that that play into a given consultation? And you know, how do you address them? How do you recognize them? How do you uh, judge how you're being affected by them? You know, so it's 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 constantly analyzing that broader environment relative to the task of consulting. And so I think he definitely had, if anybody had a systems view, he had it. You know, relative to the field. I mean, obviously, I would I would have a podcast just about him and wanting to just <laughs> more about him. Um, but one of the things I suppose that we were really struck by, or or we are consistently struck by, is the Tavistock tends to be you know, quite associated with the psychodynamic tradition, um, with the systemic tradition, and then obviously with with attachment and, and Bowlby actually, and behavioral ideas don't always seem to marry up easily or have friendly relationships together. Those sort of theoretical concepts and ideas sometimes can feel quite, quite divorced from one another. So what's particularly fascinating about the model um, that you and and Martens were sort of looking at, was sort of seeing aspects of mental health consultation, aspects of behavioral consultation, and sort of seeing how they could come together and actually form a model of consultation that was particularly suitable for working in in schools. And we were really interested just to hear about your your thoughts on how, how you did find trying to bring maybe a, a mental health model that might have been a bit more influenced, I suppose, by by a psychodynamic tradition, and then a, a behavioral consultation coming from from somewhere else. Well, that that really is a brilliant question, I must say. Um, first of all, it wasn't easy because I think uh, Brian and I could pick up on a certain uh, defensible division of labor, in the sense that if we looked at that broader system. Uh, the consultee organization, the school is a setting for consultation. If we looked at some of those broader issues that Kaplan spoke about, consultation as a means of preventing um, client problems and a a means of providing social support to consultees, and then sort of backed off and looked at what behavioral psychology could do at the client level, you could bring these two models together in a more complementary way. And I, I'd like to think our, our the, mo- the resulting model, which we call the integrated model of school consultation, I think did pretty well on that front. But there are going to be people, um, and I'll make this public, Kaplan himself did not believe they could come together in his worldview. In our written correspondence, and, and I do think uh, the tribute piece I, I wrote in the Journal of Educational and Psychological Consultation that came out in 2009, I think has the quote from one of those letters he sent me. He didn't really think that this was the marriage made in heaven. And I, I think he had misgivings about behavioral being too focused on the micro elements at, at the expense of more systemic, system-wide kind of elements. But, you know, again, he was new to the practice of uh, U.S. Um, school psychology. So he wasn't quite sure of the role, the actual role that most rank and file school psychologists were doing on a daily basis. So, so I, I, I attribute some of his uh, opinion to not quite understanding 
what the role was. But so I do think I yeah, there is a complementary nature to them, and I, I do think that Brian Martens is much more of a behavioral psychologist than I will ever be. But he really, at the time, and still is very much in touch with the behavioral intervention literature. And it's clear, given the empirical studies and the efficacy, and just all about that that area. I guess again, perhaps micro, as as Kaplan probably saw it, but effective, uh, demonstrating change in in student behavior, and and leading the charge really in terms of that evidence based practice movement for focused, targeted school based interventions. And so I think that that literature has come a long way in, in the last 20 years, certainly. And I think that is reason alone to have that as a core area within any kind of uh, consultation approach. And, and actually, if I could make a, a related comment here, I'm fond of saying that consultation is an intervention within an intervention. And that to me implies that you have to not only um, look at the broader factors that come with being a consultant and organizational considerations, classroom environment, et cetera, you know, consultee um, kinds of related things, but also you have to understand the intervention literature, the treatment literature, because you are in consultation. If you follow the time-honored idea that it is the consultee who is the interventionist, that person has to then implement that intervention. So you need to know it very well before you turn it over to the consultee and, in a sense, assist the consultee with carrying out the intervention. But my, you know, my saying, you know, consultation is an intervention within an intervention, I've used in the context of telling people why consultation research is so difficult these days, because you have to, to be published in a top flight journal, you have to have a high quality intervention study embedded in your consultation study. And for a lot of people, that's a tall order. And, and, but at the same time, what a great contribution. And it's people like, um, you know, Susan Sheridan uh, at University of Nebraska, who uh, is able to do that and has done it, has sustained that for so long. And it's, um, it's just remarkable, but it's, uh, it's an interesting area, no doubt. It's fascinating. I think for what the trainees experience here, they're, they, tr they trot it out at interview very well about there are five core functions of the psychologist. So consultation, assessment, intervention, training and research operating at three levels, the kind of individual in context level, the group and the organizational level. And so research is in theory, or at least espoused, to borrow a phrase from Chris Argyris, as being a core element or aspect of the psychologist's role, but very much probably more practitioner-based research or research that a, a, a working professional working in a, in a school is able to undertake. Um, the kinds of studies that you're talking about, Bill, that can get into those top-flight journals are probably not the kinds of research that practitioners like Jess and M, well, they are now and, and they will go on to be, um, are, are really probably able to do, actually. Um, is, is the same kind of tradition available to school psychologists in the States, whereby if after you've qualified and you're, you're working as a school psychologist, can you still engage in 
research that could be published, perhaps not in, in those journals, but practitioner-based journals, or, or is, it, is it kept more kind of separate, whereby there might be more of an academic university research tradition? I'm, I'm splitting now and saying, and then there's the practice side of things. Well, there's certainly an array of uh, professional journals out there, um, mm. more, more journals than ever, actually. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that for every quality manuscript, there is a journal uh, available <laughs> yeah. for its publication. But I, I, I think you're right. If you're in a practitioner role, research may be one of those five domains, but it's probably not the top rated one or based upon your, your uh, log, it's not the one you spend the most time on. But there are certain plenty of plenty of um, applied research projects that would be fitting. You certainly could do things that would be of a single case design or a case study design, however defined. You know, I think there'd be some receptivity to that. And, and even if not in uh, published form in a journal, but maybe um, an association newsletter or maybe a presentation at a, a conference. Uh, I don't know if I know the International School Psychology Association, ISPA. That's that's certainly an outlet that would be, you know, I think promising for for that kind of work. I do know that uh, in the states, the the NASP convention, National Association of School Psychologists, routinely has so many presentations, whether in poster form or oral presentations, by practitioners, and to be honest, by a lot of students who have done something on a practicum or on their internship, and they're eager to present it, you know, to uh, the professional community. So there are outlets, uh, maybe not always uh, publications, but uh, I think there's always going to be place for applied research because not everybody can have that uh, that large uh, federal or private foundation grant that allows them to do that that high level of research. But there's always going to be a need for new knowledge. And, and believe me, there is plenty we do not know about consultation. Well, that might be a place to ask you a little bit about, well, we wanted to ask you about the future uh-huh. um, and about, I don't know, gaps or places that, you know, if you, if you were in Jess and M's position and starting out, where do you think people should be going with consultation? Are there particular avenues of, of research or practice that could be really pursued. I didn't, we were also thinking a bit about tech and how much COVID has influenced the delivery of, of loads of different psychological services, not just consultation. But yeah, wanting to benefit a little bit from your, your wisdom and all of that research, what, what would you sort of say is, is the way forward or future directions? Well, that's that's always uh, a difficult question, but I, I do think you mentioned technology, and I I've been involved with that to some degree, and I believe that not even anticipating a pandemic, we've seen certainly a greater interest in the use of technology to deliver not only consultation, but other services that school or educational psychologists deliver, and it's um, to me it's it's remarkable about what schooling will look like after the pandemic ends, because I don't know if you can identify with this, but I I grew up in Wisconsin, the upper Midwest of the United States, and we would always look forward to snow days. And unfortunately, with all of the technology, there will be no more snow days because schools have learned how to deliver instruction and services remotely. Generation of children, Bill, are crying into their 
podcast device, whatever they're Absolutely. listening to. Absolutely. The yeah. snow day is now gone. Yeah. That's exactly right. And people won't realize that for a while, but that was something we certainly look forward to. Uh, anyway, just uh, relative to the, the technology, the means by which services are delivered via technology is going to improve because the technology is going to improve. So I think anyone who wants to be, I guess, kept current with that is going to be knowledgeable about certain things. And I'm not just talking about, you know, Zoom or those kinds of uh, things. So that's very helpful. But certainly an area that I've gotten into with my colleague, uh, Aaron Fisher at the University of Utah is the use of telepresence uh, robotics. And again, this this is this goes back to maybe five years ago now. Just the idea that if you can't be physically in the same space as your consultee or visit the classroom, you're supposed to make an observation. And how can you do that through technology? Well, a telepresence robot is is a is a tablet, okay, an electronic tablet that's on a mobile device that you can control remotely. So by having that that electronic computer tablet. With the camera on and the microphone on, roaming the room, for example, if you're doing a classroom observation on a student, that really can go a long way. And um, I think in terms of consultation, it can also be static. It could be just in one place and you could be having a face-to-face conversation with the teacher if, if you're doing classroom type uh, of consultation. And so that becomes a necessity really during a pandemic. But just in terms of a bit of a background, Aaron Fisher lives in the state of Utah, which is a very rural state. And he's providing services, high level services to schools that are 400 miles, 500 kilometers away because of the technology that's in place, the internet, a lot, if you have a good signal, good signal strength, good connection, uh, you basically can communicate, you can work professionally. And I guess along those lines, you may not be aware of this, but the need to practice telepsychology has really grown to the point where in the United States, where common practice is that each of the 50 states has different requirements to become a licensed psychologist, a credential psychologist. There is now something called SIPAC, where you can gain a credential, as I recently have, to practice psychology in the cooperating states that have signed on to this pact that uh, allows me to practice telepsychology. And I believe it's about 12 or 13 states right now, whereas previously I was restricted to one state, the state I was licensed in. So, you know, I, I think that that, and again, that has greater relevance than just consultation, but it just shows that a lot of your work in the future may be done remotely and be reliant on technology. So just keeping informed uh, as to how that might might do, uh, who knows, maybe um other services, maybe Zoom will, or other providers will offer something that's fine with respect to that. Anyway, I would keep your eyes and ears open for developments along those fronts. You're making me think about that. I can't remember what phrase you used about the not interrupting, but finishing someone's sentence and how in this age of musing and unmusing or not knowing when to speak and when not to speak because you're you're on camera, how how interesting it would be to be looking into consultation in that way. Um, 
being able to read the other person when you're when yeah. you're remote? Well, that's an interesting question. And there's actually an article that Aaron uh, Fisher and I and, and about five other people published in the Journal of School Psychology that compared, and this would have been, uh, I'm going to say 2018, maybe. Uh, this is one where there was a comparison of the traditional consultation, you know, same room face-to-face compared with a remote broadcast through a telepresence robot or tablet. I don't think you needed the the mobility, so it probably was just via tablet. But um, we talked earlier about the consultation analysis record and how you can use, there are certain summary variables. There are four indices of interview effectiveness. Anyway, that study basically looked at the comparability of those two modalities of presentation relative to those four indices of interview effectiveness. And actually the the mobile remote type of consultation fared pretty well, and I think was higher than the traditional on one measure. But but the point wasn't to show the superiority of one method over another, but it was mainly to say, well, is this, can we do this? Is this possible? But you're, you're right. I mean, I, I, I kind of laugh because I, I started and played my career pretty much through in-person face-to-face communication. And now what do we have? We, we communicate over longer distances, but through screens. Mm-hmm. And what is missing? I, I, I agree that something is missing, the immediacy, maybe the ability to look at body language, the, the whole nonverbal sort of thing. And of course, the, the unlikelihood of simultaneous speech because of the, uh, in many cases, a muting function or just it becomes more of a one-way uh, communication. So true. And it's also that bit of when you finished, if you were in per, you don't have to then think, I'll press on mute and now I'll speak, which is kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's something because I, I think there's a richness to conversational exchanges when there's overlapping speech, when mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, again, more immediate, when there's, you can anticipate what someone's going to say or do, You're reading facial cues that get, I think, trickier over a screen, you know, that, that sort of thing. So yeah. things like that. But so I, I again, I'm, I'm a little bit amused that I, I, I thought I could a lot of the things I studied early on would be just as relevant now, but face-to-face communication isn't what it used to be, or in-person face-to-face communication isn't what it used to be. You could still argue it's face-to-face, it's just not uh, quite the same as it was because of the yeah. introduction of technology. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really, really helpful for us in thinking about how we might um, move forward as trainees. And actually, most of our training now has been done and remotely and most of our training and consultation has been uh, done remotely so I know I think we are a bit apprehensive about when we do start going back (laughs) (laughs) and how we're delivering consultation then but I think it will be a case of that's a bit of a mixture actually and so that's really really helpful and I'm just thinking um, I'm thinking about kind of finishing up and Bill in terms of us and our training journey is there any kind of one significant kind of book or article, anything we could watch, um, you'd um, advise all of us trainee EPs here in the UK um, to access as we start this kind of journey into becoming um, consultants. Well, let me reassure you though, Emily, that it probably, if you can do the consultation remotely, it's probably going to be easier face-to-face. Okay. Let's take that as a, as a reassuring thought because you've done the hard work. All right. So uh, go with that. You know, it's really hard to, to pin down things. Um, 
and it's a difficult question. You know, in preparing for this, I, I thought of two books or two publications, but I've mentioned them both already. Uh, Gerald Kaplan's Theory and Practice of Mental Health Consultation, which certainly um, I've drawn from. You know, it's it's what fifty years old now, but there's still some really good ideas, some foundational ideas there, and particularly I think ideas that would resonate with Tavistock. You know, there's just um, a lot of ideas there that I think are consonant with uh, training philosophy and, and so on. The other one I, I, I talked about already was uh, Roy Martin's 1978 article on expert and referent power, because again, that kind of strips things down to the basics. You know, beyond that, it gets complicated for me. You know, it, I've been at this for so long, it's hard to find the single definitive source. I was going to bring up earlier, you know, the idea that what I've gained through consulting over time is kind of like those studies from the 1970s on novice versus expert chess players. Maybe you studied those somewhere along the line where if you look at a novice approaching that, they're going to come up with different ideas about what's the best move than the expert. And so, and, and I don't know if you're chess players, but if you've seen the Queen's Gambit or have heard of it, you kind of know what I'm talking about. You probably didn't read the studies from the 1970s, I realize. But, but the idea is that there's so many different decision points when you get uh, more experienced at it. So it's, it's hard for me to pin down. Uh, I suppose to answer your question, though, I could, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work. I think that... Uh, of course, I like my books, but I, I don't want to promote them uh, too much. But I think they're uh, worth thumbing through to kind of expand your your ideas. You know, one that I'm particularly proud of, I could say, is the second handbook of research and school consultation, which came out in 2014. And, you know, we put a lot of thought into that. It was a follow-up to the one we had done about six, seven years before that. But we spent a lot of time on that table of contents. And we came up with some really good people doing some really good work. And I think it's broad enough that if you see a topic that interests you, just read that chapter. Um I wouldn't be surprised uh, getting, um, you know, access to a copy through, you know, a major university library or whatever. I don't know if you have interinstitutional library loan or whatever, but uh, you may just want to, you know, check out some of those chapters because it's, as I say, broad-based, again, supplying that empirical foundation to what leads to effective and efficacious consultation mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. It's on their reading list, actually. Oh, um, well. Yeah. So, no, it's a, it's, I mean, just thinking of people who, who are in there, like Ingrid Highlander, or I can't say anybody's name. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Notech, K-N-O-T-E-K. Uh, yes, Notech. Yeah. You don't pronounce the K. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, yeah. But also about the really interesting, I think, and I think that was one of the ongoing or, or, things that we wanted to really draw out with you, Bill, is this idea that there are intuitive ideas that people may believe about, you know, like this idea about it's always collaborative, but actually looking at empirical studies and does that get borne out? I think there's also, there's a chapter from Noel and Gansler, I think, about um, intervention implementation mm -hmm. and the sort of idea that, oh, well, it must be training. If you just train the consultee in being able to deliver the intervention, that's it, it will be, with fidelity, it be with integrity, it will all work. And, and this kind of emphasis on consultants training people at the intervention planning stage. But actually in that chapter, they're noticing that maybe it's the performance feedback that consultants give has maybe got a, a, a better success rate or more predictive or more influential than training alone, which I suppose brought us back again to this idea that no matter where you go in the, the stages of your problem solving, 
the relationship still seems to be key. The pro the the interaction between consultant and consultee, whether it's contracting or formulating together or or getting to intervention implementation, whilst of course the consultee does take that up, it's still important to continue to be in relationship with one another at that stage too. Yeah, I mean, such good ideas here you're talking about. I I think that um, the relational aspects are are going to override so much else in consultation. So very very important. And I I will say that for trainees that uh, sometimes you downplay the importance of the relationship that develops because you're concerned about following a protocol or doing this, doing that, doing the other. But that's part of again observing the process which I, I spoke of earlier. So yeah, the relational piece is real important. We didn't get to a suggested question on resistance, but I would say that most cases of resistance that I've encountered are probably best addressed through greater consideration of relational elements to explain why the resistance developed and why you're stuck in it now. <clears throat> I do think that's um, really prominent. And to get back to the the Noel and Gansel comment, I think um, they would put their money on performance feedback back because that's another area that has emerged as so, so critical to intervention research that has now trickled down into consultation because of that intervention within an intervention kind of concept, performance feedback, so critical. And notice how that that flies in the face of some of those earlier elements of consultation about being non-judgmental and being accepting and not being directive. But what what is more directive than giving performance feedback? But I, it, it really does underscore that importance of research and, and a kind of a curiosity about the practice and trying to really be interrogative of what one is doing and not just kind of thinking, well, I want to be, you know, non-judgmental, accepting, collaborative, et cetera. And I'm very passionate about those values. It's actually taking that, but also thinking about, well, what actually happens um, and, and maybe what we might believe is happening is actually sort of not quite what comes out when we go back and look at what we did and what the consultee did within that dance of consultation that we've engaged in with them. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, really wanting to reiterate that idea about the evidence base and within that the importance of the best available research that that anybody can draw on um, and integrate with you know, the APA definition with, with um, clinical expertise and patient preference culture and characteristics or whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. It's just that best available research and, and keeping yourself up to date and knowledgeable as a, as a kind of a scholar of, of the practice seems really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Ideally, science should inform practice. You know, I think even looking at the pandemic, I'd like to think science in most cases has informed policy and decisions about this, that, and the other. I think that uh, it, it goes a long way. I think in consultation, we have this problem, though, that the science isn't always there because we haven't researched consultation as much as, say, uh, counseling practices, psychotherapeutic procedure, um, these kinds of things. So there's still there's still a lot to do. So the yeah the the agenda the research agenda is still quite long. But it, it made me remember a, a comment uh, when I was first starting out that I heard from an associate editor of a, a major journal, and I was a beginning reviewer, a young academic in in my first job. 
And I was assigned to review a consultation manuscript. And the editor, associate editor who wrote the letter rejecting the article made a very interesting comment that has stuck with me, which is that someday we won't consider consultation research to be an oxymoron, which I'm still trying to get my head around today. But I think we've come a long way since that time. There is a lot of good research out there, but still plenty to do. And I think that for us, for Emily and I, was part of the reason that we were so interested, I guess, in starting this podcast and thinking about actually what's happening in the rest of the world as well. Because in the UK, it does feel like that there still isn't that much research being done in consultation or about consultation. And I think a lot of our learning, a lot of our understanding, actually, we are drawing on US literature and the context is slightly different and it would be great. I think just having this conversation has been really inspiring. And I know Emily and I are very keen to try and start doing some research. Um, yeah, in all the sort of things that we've been speaking about today. So yeah, I think it's been really helpful to speak to you. And I'm sure everyone who listens to this will have got a lot of ideas and be very inspired by you as well. Um, it would be nice just to yeah end, end here and, and thank you so much, Bill, for uh, coming on to the podcast and speaking with us and sharing all the things that you've shared. I know we could go on <laughs> um, for a long time. I think all of us would enjoy that. Um, and it seems almost a shame. And I know there's things that we probably haven't, haven't touched upon that we would really have liked to speak to you about um, perhaps another time in the future when we can perhaps be in person. But yeah, just a huge thank you. And I'm sure Emily and Emma will want to thank you as well. Yeah, I just, yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think it's been, it's been so insightful and really helped piece some things together in my head that I've had as I've kind of encountered consultation and the things in my training um, from university and in kind of my practice. So um, I know um, the trainees who listen to this um, in the future, will it will piece some things together um, for them. Um, in a really effective and efficient way. So thank you so much um, for your time, Bill. Yeah, I can only, um, I was going to say second, but I think I'm going third. Uh, what what Em and Jess have said, it's been an absolute privilege um, to have had this chance to speak with you. So thank you very much. Well, thanks to uh, the three of you for uh, allowing me this opportunity to talk about consultation. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And, you know, if listeners would like to follow up and read um, my publications, they can visit my page at uh, researchgate.net or uh, track them down through uh, Google Scholar. So I know a lot of people use ResearchGate these days. Um, and it's, it's, it's a good resource. And I think most importantly, it's, it's um, international. I, I get a lot of um, interest, I think, from uh, folks outside the U.S. Mm, that's great. Great. Thank you.